0: This is the WorkSmart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 200. Adam Eason on Hypnotic Evidence. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. Break out the party balloons. It's Jason Lynette here. And here we go. This is episode number 200 of the Work Smart Hypnosis podcast. Several years in the making and making the decision on this one to actually share the stage with somebody that I've been wanting to have on this program for quite some time. And if you go into the show notes over at WorkSmartHypnosis.com, the show notes attached to this episode, we're going to link over to when Adam had me on his podcast several years ago. And we've been back and forth for years, finally getting to meet and Person at the 2018 UK Hypnosis Conference. And there's a big uh, sort of reason as to why I'm positioning Adam here on episode number 200, which we find ourselves all in a rather interesting point in time in this hypnotic profession. Uh, A point in time, at least for me personally, that uh, timing wise, this episode is coming out the Thursday before my book, Work Smart Business, launches. And yes, this episode could have been entirely uh, self promotion in terms of that upcoming project, which of course you can. Head over to WorksmartBusiness.com to learn all about that. Of course, you can. But really, to look at the state of things in terms of this profession, and I'd kind of put things in a metaphor as we often do, in part of this introduction, that I left the career in theater about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago at this point. And yes, there was some overlap where I was doing hypnosis part-time, working with clients, traveling the country, doing school programs. And there came a point in time of realizing, oh, damn, I'm actually doing better off with the part-time job than the full-time job and burning out beautifully with the full-time job. So time to move on. I want to talk about the theater environment for a brief moment here. Which is that, and this perhaps is not just a theater thing, let's call it a organizational thing, something that often nonprofits work with. My uh, wife worked in development and nonprofit arts for several years as well, and just kind of an across-the-board thing that you start to notice. And the nickname for this is what's called Founder Syndrome, that it comes down to the idea that perhaps in an arts company, maybe here is the artistic director who founded the company many years ago. And here we go, 40, 50 years later, and is still operating under the same values, under the same goals. And while the membership may have grown over the years, the attendance at the events may have grown, something is still kind of stagnant. And it's where I can name theater companies that I worked with in the old career that uh, not because I worked there, no, but theater companies that now no longer exist. And it's because even even as I was there, I mean, as an intern, looking around and going, wow, your advertising still looks like the 1980s. You're still communicating with the world around you as if it's the 70s. And it's really that lesson that what got you started is not necessarily the thing that's going to move you forward. Now, of course, be grateful of the experiences that you've had. And as a personal note, I went through an extremely dismissive timeframe in my life of looking at the fact that I had majored in theater in college and then the time I spent in that career and almost trying to erase it and disconnect from it until realizing, okay, this whole systematic way that I look at my business and how I work with my clients and how I organize my life, that's something that that career helped to refine. So, you know, soft skills, something to be gained from it. But we find ourselves at this bit of a renaissance in the profession where there were some, let's call it out, big names that used to be the dominant voice that now just don't quite fit in anymore because they're out there preaching this is the one thing that works and that's the way it has to be and meanwhile the thousands of everybody else is clearly seen otherwise organizations where attendance is dropping because well this is the way we've always done it and clearly no it's not anymore so to look at this nature of you know even as we progress as the individual i was just wrapped up yesterday, uh, WorkSmart Hypnosis Live training. And of course, learn more at WorkSmartHypnosisLive.com. Hey, you brought it up. So, <laughs> looking at it from here's a student of mine that I offer that those people who have gone through the class are able to come back at no extra charge, provided it's my own hosted event. And here's a student who came in, uh, came into the class once again, and I'm able to highlight to him, hey, this part's different. Here's a new segment. I've combined these two pieces together because this is how I've been workshopping with my clients. And also remind me, please, to grab my video camera. In fact, these new modules are already inside of hypnoticworkers.com. So to look at that progression, you know, I can think of times where years ago, uh, and maybe I have a mindset at times to, as I like to say, nerd out over certain uh, things in the profession. Many years ago, I brought Roy Hunter into town to do uh, parts therapy and a regression training and someone in the local community goes, oh yeah, I took that class years ago with someone else. I don't need to come to that. And I'm there looking at it going, sweet, you're going to do two days of parts therapy. Oh man, that's going to be awesome. And someone else is going, how are you going to get two days out of that? Well, He did. It's a great workshop. So again, looking at it from that progression, how do we get better at it? How do we challenge that model? And to highlight back to Adam Eason here, he talks about publishing a book, which is now still out there, yet it's got a lot of themes that he doesn't quite believe in anymore. In the writing of Work Smart Business, kind of driving myself to unpack, okay, so I started this whole Work Smart idea back in like 2012, 2013. And having to really define what the hell did I mean by that in the first place. And, you know, through the writing of that book and the revisions of it, the, the line from the writer, director, producer, Judd Apatow, that writing is rewriting really became a lesson. And even having to challenge my own definitions in terms of how we measure success in business, how we measure success with our clients and looking at it from that unique perspective that here I am as a hypnotist and why should other people outside of this category listen to what I've got to say. So again, positioning here we are with, with episode number 200 of this series, uh, a series that quite honestly evolved over time. Uh, I I don't tend to use the word interview anymore. These are conversations, and at times it's a real give and take and a sharing of ideas. And even Adam and I, in this dialogue, get on topics about how do we respectfully disagree with certain themes in order to move things forward. Uh, Even he at one point saying, yeah, there's someone who's said they wouldn't have me on their podcast because I'm going to say they might be wrong, which again, we should be open to that idea that uh, the infomercial line, there's got to be a better way. You know, continue to improve that model. Challenge what's working, and find those ways to level up your game year after year. So a little bit longer of a preamble this week is uh, part of the festivities of episode number two hundred. Though I challenge you: look at your belief systems at this moment. Look at what you'd say. What's working? Look at where the information comes from. And I mean, at one point there was a moment where I put this program on hi- hiatus. Because I had published an episode that was not what I wanted this program to be, and that episode is still out there. It's not the one that I recently deleted because the person I had interviewed uh, turned out to be fabricating the backstory. That's a whole other story. Ask me privately. But again, there's a point in time of going, no, 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 let's sit down. Let's have a real conversation. And that's where, you know, I had Chris Jones from America's Got Talent on the program, having Melissa Tears on the program, which, uh, by the way, uh, Melissa, if you're listening, you were supposed to be episode number 200, but you're in Mexico right now. And Adam is just as awesome, so here we go. With that, let's jump in. Thank you, everybody, for listening all these years. Head over to worksmarthypnosis.com forward slash iTunes and leave an honest review of the program. We recently uh, really jumped up with reviews on that platform, which thank you for that. Share this on your social media stream. Stick it on your MyPlace, MySpace, and your Friendster, and your members.aol.com. See what I did there? things moving forward. (laughs) With that, here we go. Thanks everybody for listening. Episode number 200, Adam Eason on hypnotic evidence.
1: So this was something that I'd never planned to do. It absolutely was something that that, that wasn't wasn't kind of on my radar, on my on, on my agenda in life in any shape or form. i um, um, whilst at university, or, or, or just kind of in the lead up to university. Um, um, I, I had a skin disorder and uh, I, I went to see a hypnotherapist simply because somebody very, very close to me had had some great success with some mental health issues um, with this particular hypnotherapist. And so, and so I went and my skin cleared and um, I, I then went and did a, a self-hypnosis training with, um, with, that, with, that, with that same individual who's a very, very charismatic man, um, somebody I'm still in contact with today. And this was like 25 years ago now. And um, I went to university and just spent the entire time at university wanting to learn more about hypnosis and hypnotherapy rather than um, social policy and politics and (laughs) psychology and and everything else that I I was in a kind of conventional sense that I was examining at the time. and, and 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 just ended up. Uh, uh, you, you know, as soon as I stepped out of university, I, I worked, or rather, I was employed for one single year of my life while I trained. Then, as soon as I had the certificate, um, I, I, I set up an office and and became a hypnotherapist there and then, and probably rather naively, um, if I'm honest, because you know I I knew nothing really about the world, and uh, you know beyond beyond the, the rather you know youthful existence that I'd had up until that point and um, at the same time I was you know as well as having that kind of naivety about about just life in general you know I didn't have a huge amount of experience um, and, and really knew nothing about business and um, spent a couple of years sort of just just about getting by but getting into a bit of debt and um, and really struggling as, as a hypnotherapist and um I had a couple of sort of pivotal experiences um in in those those first five years where um, one which involved um guy over there in the u.s a man called kevin hogan mm. who very kindly mentored me at the embryonic stages of my career and helped me get out of debt and, and just kind of develop my business a little bit um i mean we used to use msn messenger in those old days you nice. know when everything cost <laughs> everything cost cost 2p and was made of wood um, <laughs> um back it back in those kind of olden times and and he he used to say to me look look. You know do the stuff that I recommend if you don't do it don't bother getting back to me kind of thing Mm -hmm. Um, um, and he was incredibly insightful and it was it was revelatory for me and um, um a few years later um um I I worked with a man and studied did some did some professional development studying with a man called Donald Robertson um, who just kind of transformed the way I thought, made me start adhering to some kind of critical thinking, made me start examining evidence-based approaches, and, and basically led to me rejecting virtually everything I had done up until that point, um, um, and, and really kind of like shedding a thick skin, and, uh, and, and, and really just kind of transforming everything that I did. And I went in a very particular direction, and um, um, th- that led me and continues to, to lead me and drive me today. Um, so so it, basically in the process of developing my business, I wrote a book. Um, and, and thanks to, to Kevin and Kevin's kind of drive and, and, and guidance. Um, um, today, however, I, I'm rather embarrassed by that particular book because it was built on very flawed concepts, or concepts that I consider to be flawed today, mm-hmm. um, with, with a real kind of absence of evidence to support it. Um, the typical and rather, you know, a, a numerous classic notions that are still proliferated, um, um, heavily within the field today, um, um, but but you know the the, the book itself. Um, thanks to uh, an Amazon, you know, old-school Amazon promo that we did back then with a bunch of marketers, people like Joe Vitale and Kevin Hogan, people with really big big lists, Jeffrey Gittimer, for example, um, um, that, that had really big lists in those days, helped promote my book, um, and it got to number one at Amazon. Um, um, and, and because it had done so well commercially, it meant that it, it, it had a lot of close scrutiny in those early days. And I received a bunch of messages from people just kind of questioning some of the central tenets of the book and 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 the more i explored some of the things that they were saying i was you know i was i was offended um is the correct word to use you know you know how dare somebody question the central premise of my book <laughs> yeah. um, um and and i was offended and so i went off to seek to seek some defense um of of my of my point and recognized there was just this massive vacuum with regards to defending the central tenet of the book, this notion of of, of a subconscious mind and hypnosis being an altered state of consciousness. And I really struggled to to support it. And it was at a similar time, so so there I was with this best selling book that i couldn 't support and and just found rather rather disingenuous now and 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 then met like I said Donald Robertson and started to become very interested in in in, in exploring the the evidence base that 's kind of led me in in a very different direction and Um, In those early days, I found it quite difficult to to be really staunch evidence-based, to to be a real strong proponent of non-state socio-cognitive perspectives, for example. And and, and there was a lot of of sniping that I was on the receiving end of and and, and a lot of defence, a lot of people out there within the field that wanted to protest against some of the things that I was saying and um and gradually over the years i think that has softened as my as my stance um and, and as my approach to, to to the way in which i'm able to structure my argument has become more sophisticated over the years um um and and yeah you know it, that's kind of you know some broad strokes with regards to the sort of direction and journey that i've been on if you like um Um, you know I I think these days where I'm at is you know kind of fighting a sort of pseudo cult of anti-intellectualism and what I would consider to be ignorance within the field of hypnotherapy that I think which I think there is a lot of Um, you know I I fight a lot of people that I think have a huge amount of cognitive bias within the field of, of of frontline hypnotherapy and my attempts have been you know probably over the last decade primarily have been to sort of close this chasm this gap that exists between the frontline hypnotherapy field and and academia and um, I have a lot of close friends in academia a lot of really um, uh, well-known academics within the field of um, um, hypnosis and hypnotherapy research you know university professors and and prominent researchers and, and 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 making the frontline hypnotherapy field aware of them and them aware of the frontline hypnotherapy field has been kind of a little bit of my, a driving force of mine, for example, um, in more recent times. And and looking to promote critical thinking and having people question what it is they're being taught and having people think that, you know, just because they got, that they have invested in a particular thought process at a particular school of thought that perhaps you know they don't need to be entrenched in that so so dogmatically
0: right and this is one of those topics that's part of why I invited you on here about looking at you know looking at concepts that we would hold on to and you know there's so many things that I'd say we'd you know we'd learn in a class we'd read in a book and it's like well why it's like well because the book says so Well, because step four of the six-step process says I should be doing this, and here's why. Though there's a bit of a balance to that, and I'd love to have this chat with you around this, that to look at that balance around, you know, there's an expectation from the client side of things. That whether as powerful as our pre-talk can be, as persuasive as it can be, they're calling a hypnotist because they have the perception in some way, let's call it out, that we are the person who can help them to do things they normally would not do. And I'd give a simple reference that, you know, we can we can unpack any single technique, and inside of that technique, there's a lot of other things that are going on. Uh, so by a simple example, let's take EFT. And there's a sequence of EFT I may sometimes use with my clients that, yes, there – here's the air quotations – there may be something going on in terms of an energy system of the body – Yet from a hypnotic, let's even call it out theatrical perspective, that moment of stepping in closer and staring them down when the process begins started to produce a different result. So what's that balance between, as uh, out of Roy Hunter's uh, Art of Hypnosis, he talks about the B-I-C-E formula, belief, imagination, credibility, expectation. So kind of bringing in that belief and expectation, how do we measure the cognitive side of that? How do we get into the evidence-based side of, of harnessing that side of it?
1: Well, you know, um, 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 uh, belief and expectation are central to uh, a socio-cognitive perspective. Uh, uh, uh by the way i am in no position whatsoever to to comment upon things like EFT i you know i don't consider myself qualified to know to, to really know anything about that, that side of things um i would say I would say that you, you know I know a little bit um, and also I struggle to know what it really is to do with um, the, the professional sphere of competence with regards to to what a hypnotherapist does or, or rather should be doing. I think people should 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 invest themselves um, in learning much more about what they're actually doing with regards to hypnotherapy than that, 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 than investing too much time and energy effort on things um, um, that, 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 that I'm not really too sure how they become so connected and intertwined within within our skill set.
0: Yeah, especially especially when we see that sort of uh, business card with the list of 15 different modalities in the back of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I struggle I, I struggle with that. Um, and th- 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 there's enough. You know, I, I think that that diploma level training is inadequate these days. You know, I just think a lot of people take a diploma and think that, that that then entitles them to a career. You know, they spend 10 months doing it, for example, or sometimes even less engaging in that particular diploma. And and um, think they're entitled to a career that, that competes alongside psychologists or psychiatrists or conventional, you know, uh, medical professionals that have spent and dedicated years and years of their life to their training and, and their skill and so on. And, and some people even within our field after their 10 months of training even have the audacity to go around entitling themselves a master um, or something like that. Anyway, so, so if I come back to your question, if you, excuse my digression there, I, um, um, I would say that um, – um, yeah you, you know I think belief and expectation are at the heart so you know my own conceptualization these days, as far as hypnosis is concerned is very much non state it's very much ordinary and a lot of people you know I think find it upsetting that it is so so ordinary and so sober um, and, and a kind of central ethos of of my business is to to undersell and over deliver mm-hmm. um, and and not just in terms of my service, my business. My college, the training that I do, the the information that I disseminate, my own research that I disseminate, for example. But also with regards to the way in which I conceptualize hypnosis. Uh, I really object to people conceptualizing it as magic in the first instance. I would rather undersell and describe it as something very sober, a cognitive skill, for example. And part of that, that skill, part of that skill is really about. Uh, you know, sort of marshalling, corralling a number of modulating factors that are based in, grounded in really good psychological science. So, so, so teaching someone to adopt a very particular mindset that becomes a cognitive skill equates to hypnosis. Now I've used a lot of multi-syllabic words in there, <laughs> but you know I'm not going to use the same kind of language with my clients. So I'm assuming that your audience are are, are of a highbrow highbrow nature and, and and know what it is that I'm talking about here. Yes. and so um, um, w- within my explanation to the client, I will be I'll be conceptualizing hypnosis in terms that it that it's a skill that requires them to adopt a very particular mindset that advances, the their receptivity and their suggestibility um, um i also um, this will be a sort of digression i don't know if we'll get the opportunity to talk about any of my research while, while we're speaking um today but but you know i also think that self-hypnosis goes before hetero-hypnosis rather than the other way around um, um but but so, so for me teaching self-hypnosis is the kind of primary driver within therapy is 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 important to me um and and my research tends to support that and that's the reason that i that i live by that But when we're conceptualizing hypnosis as this particular mindset, therefore, I want to speak to people about creating expectation. Um, You know, it's a cognitive skill. And so, if you know, I want to talk to them about creating a certain degree of expectation, um, I'm creating a certain amount of almost like self deception, for want of a better expression, whereby. You know, when we talk about volition in terms of classic suggestion effects, Um, um that people can, can apply some volition in order to create it and create the effect, but then convince themselves that they that they did it, that it happened or it
0: occurred non-volitionally, for example. Which I may be getting ahead of you on this one, but that's kind of the nature of what their problem already is. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That, absolutely.
0: Yeah. There's that self-deception of, I can't stop this thing, and yet... Yes, you could, and I'm going to help you find ways where you can do it on your own. Yeah,
1: precisely, precisely, and so, and you know, so at the heart of of a lot of my work is always this a kind of secondary goal and aim is always going to be to create self efficacy. Um, and for, for for your listeners that are not fully aware or fully versed on the notion of self efficacy, um, it's something that 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 has a really strong evidence base. It was developed by Albert Bandura um in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, um, and and when something on the line started off in sports psychology and then it's kind of moved into therapeutic fields and all kinds of things. Um, I mean, it's this notion that the more you believe in your ability to do something, the more your actual ability to do that thing is raised, you know, and, and your belief and your confidence in your ability to do that thing basically creates this kind of cycle, this virtuous cycle whereby you become better at it. So within a therapy room, if the client begins to, to, to see some results and develops um, a belief in their ability to get better, thus their actual ability to get better begins to raise and increase. So for me, um, you know, a natural way to be able to do that is to, to give people evidence of what they're doing and what they're capable of doing within the self-hypnosis forum. You know, i um, that the evidence tends to suggest. Um, and, you know, I keep referring to the evidence tends to suggest, and, and I would just kind of contextualize that a little bit. That's not just a kind of lame, vacuous expression. This is me. This is me leaning in on, you know, I, I published the first ever meta-analysis and and, and literature, systematic literature review to, um, to to feature in a peer-reviewed academic journal on on clinical applications of self-hypnosis for example so so when i'm kind of referring to the evidence i'm talking about studies like that um if any of your listeners want to want to tap me up and request a copy of that uh, i'm permitted to do so if they request it uh, i can't just go around giving it away because um, it's copyrighted to the to, to the uh, to the journal, but but so so, so within within that the evidence tends to suggest therefore that um, um self efficacy is a is a kind of inherent byproduct um, or it's inherent or a byproduct of the self hypnosis skills that that individual is developing, um, which which is a really lovely thing to do with anybody to, to you know that even before we've kind of rolled our sleeves up and got into the therapy they're already feeling very capable and very very able of doing a number of really cool things and so say for example i'm going to teach somebody to to use self-hypnosis and actualize some hypnotic phenomena the kind of stuff that we do one-to-one with our clients all of the time i'm um, sticking a pen to their hand or sticking their hand to their leg or their chair or something like that you know really useful life skills and um, um, um you know and, and uh, you know i i explain this to them and, and this is coming back to your point about, you know, where, where we can also now start to conceptualize the problem in similar terms, the therapeutic problem in similar terms to the way in which we're conceptualizing hypnosis. So if they turn around and they say to me, yeah, but Adam, you know, it, it's quite difficult for me to imagine a pen is stuck to my arm because I know it's not really. That makes a lot of sense for, for anybody to say that because I know it's not really. My my first response is, well, that's what The hypnotic mindset that I'm teaching you to do is about, you know, to create a little bit of self-deception. However, let's just sidestep that for a moment and let's discuss the actual problem itself. Let's look at the process that you engage in with regards to that particular problem. Um, So say, for example, the problem is, you know, this client has a phobia of dogs for example. So they're now walking through a field. They're walking through a field or a park and 100 metres away, there's somebody walking a dog that's on a lead and, and it's a chihuahua, you know. Um, um, so, you know, sort of half, half actual dog, half mouse is being walked over in the corner of the field. Now, for this person to be walking 100 metres away um, and, and now to suddenly start experiencing fear, they're doing the negative self-hypnosis process. That is, they have invested belief expectation um, um, elements of non-volition within the response they're kind of expecting a response to happen they are imagining you know potential negative outcomes they're doing virtually everything that i'm asking them to do they're investing belief investing expectation engaging their imagination um um, i'm you know creating a sense of non-volition about it, which is exactly the same formula that I'm asking them to apply with regards to their self-hypnosis. So when they say to me, yeah, you know, it's hard to imagine the pen being stuck to my hand. I'll say to them, but you know what, you're already doing this so beautifully and automatically already. The exact same formula is being done at the heart of the problem. So even though I rather kind of glibly and and jokingly say, you know, you're going to be learning these kind of these these really useful life skills, like sticking a pen to your hand. You know, I, I always imagine my clients getting home after that kind of orientation session with me and and the, the husband or wife saying, you know, how would you get on with the hypnotherapist, dear? You know, you know, how are you getting on with 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 the hypnotherapist for your depression? And he says, Ah, great, thanks. I learned how to stick a pen to my hand. And and husband and wife just is thinking, you know, what what, what on earth have we invested in here? So so so, so even though I joke about that and, and about the potential usefulness of it, the point is that that's a massive thing to actually be able to do. First of all, in terms of the the kind of byproduct of self-efficacy that I mentioned earlier, but also with regards to this notion of teaching oneself the mechanisms, the process by how to create convincing change, how to how to manage one's reality how to corral and control and be responsible for one's own reality which which i really rather love
0: right right and i love that perspective that you know we can look at that same model and there's some who would make use of hypnotic phenomenon but it's that intention of making sure the client is aware that they're the one making that happen as my characterization is not to go into the uh I am the almighty hypnotist and I command thine arm not to bend. No, it's instead that, you know, here's, you're the one that's making this happen. And if you can do this, you can also now fill in the blank of the change. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And I think, um, one of the, you know, and and this is, this is the reason that I'm so, that I'm so, um, that, that, I feel so strongly about a lot of the kind of received wisdom and that I lecture quite heavily on a lot of the received wisdom, that is taught at diploma level, you know, that, that, that the mind is, you know simplistically divided into a conscious and an unconscious and and that, that that that's how it works for example that that hypnosis is about trance and trance states for example, which is very often walks hand in hand with this idea of of a kind of almighty benevolent force of some kind, whether that is an an unconscious mind or or a, or a therapist um and developing that that those kinds of notions
0: do you think it's a do you sorry to jump in there, but do you think it's an issue of needing needing new words? New terminologies, or is it a matter of redefining the original terms? Because it's where I I openly will talk about trance with my clients. Yet I say this: the definition is actually very simple. It's where internal focus carries more meaning than external reality. So your task is to sit there comfortably on an airplane, and that's all you have to do, and that's the external reality. Yet the internal uh, perception is that I'm terrified we're all going to crash and die. So even though you consciously know this one is not true, the internal trance state. Is something else and to, to quote the popular line instead this is a process of helping you to learn how you can trade that trance out for something more more effective
1: for you sure um you know when you look at I mean if we just take if we just take the word trance for example and the notion of trance you know um, when you're looking at definitions um, um you know kind of um it, it typically is referring to mental states in which the person is unaware or apparently unaware of the environment and it's very often characterized by loss a voluntary movement, a lack, lack of sensitivity to external stimuli, some of, you know, some of which I, I, I think you 're potentially kind of alluding to there um, um, you know, I think however that that, that 's potentially potentially a little bit misleading and i, I don 't think things need to be redefined you know uh, to come back to your original question um, i don 't think things need to be redefined necessarily because there's there's enough definition out there. There's enough academic, you know, material and stuff out there. I just think we need to be more thorough in order that we arrive at our own definitions. So, for example, you know, um, um, you know, you've obviously given this some thought and you've obviously got a lot of experience with this in order to to feel qualified to make a decision that it's okay for me to use the word trance. Now I'm not saying that this is that this ought to be outlawed. What I'm saying is that people need to know both sides to this discussion and this debate, that there is a lot um, um, that there is a lot of rhetoric out there um, um, that is anti the use of the word. So for example, if you look at the work of Kirsch and Lynn. 1995, for example, um, in the American psychologist, a paper that was entitled The Altered State of Hypnosis, Changes in Theoretical Landscape. They actually um, um, mention a couple of studies, in particular, a 2002 study that Stephen Lynn looked at, um, that said that when participants were told that responding to hypnosis meant they had to enter a trance, they ended up being less suggestible the participants Mm. who were just told that responding to hypnosis required them to be actively involved in the process so so the the only variables that were altered in the two groups in responding to hypnosis was that one was told they had to enter a trance and one was told that they just had to be actively involved in the process so trance and the, um, the, the the kind of unqualified notion of it led to to lower suggestibility, and I also think that sometimes the notion of trance, especially when used in Ericksonian terms, tends to be a little bit obfuscating with regards to with regards to to, to hypnosis and what hypnosis actually is. And I think what the evidence suggests hypnosis is, you know, that it is something that is this kind of passive state that, that people go into and dive into, like it's a blemange or something, you know? Um, and, and, and I think that, and, and I think that that also it runs the risk of, of, of creating a lot of kind of false, false, Perception that, that 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 you know mainstream media get a hold of and and, and they like that they like a lot of that sort of um, um, mystique and mystery and I think that we need to we need to to, to shake that off if we are to become a, a mainstream or if we are just to be pulled in a little bit from the darkness of the fringes, because that's where we're at. We're at the fringes. Right. And I think, you know, so, so I'm not suggesting there needs to be, um, um, that this stuff needs to be rewritten because you know what? It's all out there already. It's all there. It's just that the vast majority of the field do not know both sides. The vast majority of the field do not understand that more complex and just state versus non-state debates is this big debate about the theory of hypnosis that is, you know socio cognitive versus dissociation theories for example and and that th- 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 there're still echoes of that debate happening in modern neuroscience today where neuroscientists are creating some rapprochement between the two and actually finding you know similarities some of my own research actually is contributing to that to that discussion to suggest that in a similar way that Zoltan Dien's cold control theory offers up a, a really interesting model of, of, of modern day approaches to hypnosis. Self-hypnosis offers um, um, a, a bit of rapprochement between, um, between, you know, socio-cognitive perspectives of hypnosis and, and dissociation perspectives of hypnosis, um, um, which, which, which I find delightful. However, when I take that discussion and that debate to CPD events, to conventions, to conferences, I get squinty looks, um, mm-hmm. and, and and I get people looking at me like as if to say, you know, what the fuck are you talking about, Adam? You know, I, 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 I have no idea of this because they just don't know. They've just been taught this is what hypnosis is.
0: Well, I think if we take a lot of these definitions, we take a lot of these concepts as. You know, that's just what it is when that's really what it may be. I, exactly. I flash back to there's an earlier there's an earlier episode of this podcast series with a friend of mine, Greg who who is uh, in a master's level training of neuroscience. And he was even referencing the the documentary, What the Bleep Do We Know? And he goes, well, they're they're right on a bunch of points. Yet the thing that's missing is that, as, as he put it, we're doing hypnotic suggestion as much as you are. We need to always be under the phrasing of research now suggests. That this may be the case, as opposed to stating it as an absolute, that the moment we make that absolute statement that, okay, now that they've lost the numbers in the Dave Elman induction, they are now in somnambulism. Okay, yeah. Well, what the hell does that yeah, mean? Well, what do well, we do exactly, with that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And
1: do you know what? You know, um, um, I have, you know, I, I encounter a lot of um, um, a lot of resistance from people that, that as soon as you start to cite some evidence, or as soon as you know you demonstrate that you've read some research, a lot of people get a little bit uppity about this, you know, um, um, and, and start to get a little bit defensive and, and say to me, "Well, you know, this is, um, um, this is this is this is just academic what you're discussing here. All I want." All I want to know is to be able to, to, to know what works. And, and you know, the, first of all, the science side of things is not about saying I am correct. It's about saying that, that, that given the evidence, um, the most responsible decision we can make currently is ABC. Um, and but i will yield if something else comes along that supersedes that it's never going to be set in stone we'd be flexible all the time and and science is not just a kind of you know especially because we're not talking about natural sciences here we're talking about psychological science which is open to a huge amount of of interpretation and and misinterpretation and it's complex and there's so many variables to encounter and even you know as far back as the 1930s Clark Hull when he was doing some of the the very first ever you know research into hypnosis uh, laboratory style with any kind of scientific principle recognized how utterly difficult and challenging it is to conduct effective scientific psychological research in the field of hypnosis it's very challenging so we're not saying that that one thing is correct we're saying that, that that given the evidence and given the weight of evidence in a particular way we we can we can start to make more responsible decisions but that you know we're not just digging our heels in like I said earlier, you know, we're not dogmatically entrenching ourselves in one particular mode of thought. Instead, we're always going to be open to something being superseded and we will yield if, if, if something else comes along to change that. And we must do. We mustn't just think, look, I've invested some money. I've invested a, a substantial amount of money in my training. I really liked the tutor. I really enjoyed my course. So therefore, I must believe in everything that I was told. Um, you know, a, a lot of people avoid. Having discussions with me about their their creations um, and about things that they put out there into the marketplace, because. Um um, I mean, one lady, for example, refuses to, to have me on on her podcast. You know, She mentioned it on one of her episodes and mentioned me on one of her po- episodes because she said, you know, Adam Eaton doesn't believe in what I do. And rather than avoiding the people that don't believe in what you do, you ought to be engaging with those people precisely because of that, for, for that reason. And and what you do ought to be able to bear up to some scrutiny. And if it doesn't bear up to scrutiny, then you have a wonderful opportunity To make it better. And, you know, so um, I I mentioned a recent publication, a recent paper that I had um, published um, in the psychology, the the American Psychological Association journal, the psychology of consciousness. Um, Stephen Lynn is the editor the prolific hypnosis researcher, Stephen Lynn is the editor. And, um, and for those people that are not aware, you know, when you have peer review, it means that people on the peer review board, the editorial board, you know, major academics and major contributors to the field review your paper before publication. And, you know, I, I, I submitted my paper. It's part of my PhD. Um, um, submitted my paper. And and this was my, my my first foray into this field. And when it came back, that the commentary, um, and because they purposely submit it to academics who have dissenting perspectives to yours or, or, or contrasting perspectives to yours, you know, it needs to be robustly examined. And you know, I wanted to cry for a few days. I wanted to sit in, in in you know a darkened bedroom and listen to my old teenage Smiths LPs and just feel sorry for myself. And I was like, you know, how dare you criticize my life's work and so on. But actually, this is massively, re- you know, a massively Um, um, effervescent process in fact it's so good for you to take that stuff on board you know they weren't having a go at me personally you know they weren't having a pop at me personally instead they were looking at my work and what my contribution had had and i needed to examine other things i needed to examine my own biases and i needed to be objective and as a result my paper became better and and you know, so, so out there in the field of frontline hypnotherapy where there's a lack of this kind of mentality, where people refuse to look at both sides of a debate and a discussion and treat their their investment in a particular model almost like it is a cult, and build walls around it and protect it from any dissenting perspectives, it it festers and, and it, you know, it won't develop as a result and instead to be open and let it bear up to some scrutiny and it is where you have the chance for it to mature and become better and also for it to be seen as it, as it truly is. And I think there's a, so much willingness amongst the field of hypnotherapists because very often the training has been inadequate to, To 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 enjoy being spoon fed with techniques of people that are supposed to be, you know, prolific and supposed to be incredibly successful. Um, You know, one of the things that that I really respect about yourself, Jason, is how you've managed to commercialize your business so effectively. And, um, you know, I think you're good. You're good. You know, you represent what people can do commercially really well. Yet yeah, one of the things that I struggle with within the field of hypnotherapy is a lot of people teaching others how to be successful therapists when they haven't actually been successful themselves it's a, it's a real facade yes. you know there's a there's a, there's a business conference and convention out there in the world Currently, um, um, where, where lots of people are going and, and giving lots of advice to, to willing hypnotherapists about how to be effective in business. And, and I've been asked to go and speak at it. And, and, and I struggle to go and to go and put put my flag in the ground at an event of that kind. Um, there was a guy based in the US, um, very well known hypnotherapist who, who, who was poorly. Um, he was sick um, um, a little while ago. And I um, was asking the hypnotherapy field for assistance with his medical bills. You know, could people help him and give him some financial assistance to pay his medical bills? And yet a year or so later, he was running workshops and giving advice to other people about how to run an effective hypnotherapy business. And I just struggle with that. And I think this is this is this is, you know, synonymous with this idea of people also. Um, I'm teaching certain methods and methodologies within the hypnotherapy field that perhaps are untried and untested um but but are the individual's own creation and so um you know i think I think that 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 this notion of critical thinking that I'm talking about actually embraces creativity it connects ideas and is very much about us thinking about both sides of the debate, about asking important questions, not being personal, not not resorting to logical fallacy, but asking really healthy questions, that as a result, the field grows and develops and matures effectively with some objectivity and bears up to some scrutiny and doesn't just allow more and more fermentation of nonsense or of myth and misconception. Even people that are very well recognized and very well perceived within this field um, um, tend to regurgitate a lot of myth and misconception Um, um, and and don't like having questions asked of it and get very defensive and and use their charisma and their personality to to talk talk that stuff down and to, to talk away the critique rather than being open to it. Um, I realized that there's one single point in there, but I'm hoping, <laughs> but I'm hoping, you know, and I realized <laughs> no, I went around the house. No, I was letting
0: you go because you uh, I was letting you just go on with that because you complimented me in there. So thank you for that.
1: No, it's <laughs> <laughs> now to look
0: at that perspective that, you know, again, it, it should be a what's working now on the business side of things rather than here's a really cool idea that I have. And it's the same dialogue within the hypnosis training side of things that it's not here's a really cool artistic process I just made up for the sake of filming a video of and selling online, it's instead, here's something I've been using with clients for a number of years, and here, test it out for yourself as well. I wanted to kind of pivot part of the conversation, though, that, uh, and I would give you the disclaimer that you are not in the community that I'm uh, referencing when I say this, is that I see a lot of similar dialogue going on these days around, here's what needs to be fixed, here's what needs to be fixed. Though, as we pivot to that concept of evidence-based work, I just ask you for a simple, let's go nuts and bolts on this. So what are those things that we do as hypnotists that we can now fit into that category of evidence-based work that, yes, there's the research with uh, self-hypnosis, which I love that in terms of getting that hypnotic foot in the door right away that you can create this, you can create that different response. What other techniques, what other modalities fit into that, into that header for you?
1: Well, I mean, within the field of, I mean, it's it's very sparse pickings within the field of self hypnosis. You know, I mean, um, my own my own systematic review. You know, we we, we drew up. Um, I'm looking at examining the databases of the, of the literature. We drew up 546 studies on clinical self self hypnosis applications, um, but actually, when we looked uh, at how many of those. Would, would make the final cut for the paper that I was publishing um, um, of being fully randomized, fully controlled trials, you know, there was 22. So, um, you know, that, that it, it, it was it, it's a lot easier to write about just 22 studies. However, the field of hetero has, has much more, you know, substantially more. Nothing like the field of cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, which which even even when it has its own ineptitude within it still stands up. In, in health services, especially that here in the UK, because of the, the just the abundance of material that it's got to support it, as far as evidence is concerned. So, as far as the field of heterohypnosis is concerned, and you know, hypnotherapists that are listening today, um, I think there's 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 a number of things that we can draw upon. Um, if, if you if, if you Google my name, um, I'm Adam Eason, uh, empirical. Uh, um, um, E.S.T. Empirical, um, su- empirically Supported Treatment, um, um, you'll find, um, um, I, you know, I've disseminated a couple of papers out there that, um, um, that show a lot of kind of key findings from the research um, that, that can be supported. So, for example, I think what what one particular a major, major finding that this kind of got a got a second wind, if you like, currently, especially here in Europe, is the fact that people don't have to be zonked out to be hypnotized. So... Um, um, you know hypnosis and relaxation are not correlated you know they're not correlated they're not dependent upon each other um, um so one of my books for example is hypnosis for running um, um you know i spent a, a number of years being an endurance athlete and ran 100 mile endu- non-stop running events um, using self-hypnosis and i was not physically relaxed during that time you know i was not able to lie down pop on some whale music and throw a crochet blanket over myself um, in order to do to to do self-hypnosis, you know? Um, 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 you know, I had to be doing it on the go. And so, you know, doing, you know, and, and, and th- this is great news for our anxiety clients, by the way, you know, because when someone has anxiety, very often they, they find it, you know, inherently difficult to relax. And if you then say to them, okay, sit down and relax, you know, start relaxing your arms. Now start relaxing this, now start relaxing this they they might think, well, 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 hang on, I've got anxiety. One of the problems I'm problems I have is that I cannot relax. And here you are asking me to relax in order to get better. Um, um so it's 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 a real breath of fresh air to say to those people you don't have to relax at all you just need to adopt this particular mindset you know hypnosis and relaxation are not correlated um this you know, this notion that someone needs to be in a reclining chair, zonked out, dribbling down themselves while, while the hypnotherapist kind of affects this hush FM DJ voice, you know, and starts doing a uh, deeper, uh, deeper kind of stuff that, 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 you know, you run the risk of them wanting to kill themselves with too much of that kind of talk. Um, I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, it can be upbeat. It can be alert. Um, Eva Banyer back in the seventies and then in the nineties did, um, um, did some really impressive research, um, like I said, with Ernest Hillgard in the 70s and, and by herself in the 1990s, that whereby they used stationary bicycles um, and, and people were, were being hypnotized whilst pedaling bicycles. And they were still just as responsive to the people that were being zonked out um, and, and that were deeply, profoundly relaxed. And, and it was shown that their metabolism was stoked. There was no way they could possibly be classed as being physically relaxed yet they were very very responsive to hypnosis nonetheless so the two are not dependent upon each other you know hypnosis you you do not it does not have to be conceptualized as being a sleep-like state really the only thing it has in common with sleep is that typically people have their eyes closed when they are doing it um um, i would say that that's that that's you you know one really important thing for a number of people to be aware of for for people also to be aware of um, and the research any evidence that that, that that kind of defies a lot of myths about it being an altered state of consciousness um, which which I think is that notion is not very portable um, so for example you know that there's some really good friends of mine that have been on your podcast quite recently that, that I disagree with vehemently um um you, you know i'm um, james brown's a really good friend of mine but i disagreed with with most of the stuff that he said on your show here um, um Freddie jackquin is a really good friend of mine and i disagreed with a couple of the central tenets of what he was speaking about this notion everything is trance everything is hypnosis and that people live these as walinsky would say you know live these everyday trances and then what we're doing is just kind of deepening that within the session um, um <clears throat> you know i i don't think the, the that what people refer to as everyday trances are actually what what hetero hypnosis is it's something very different
0: well do you think we can draw correlations as by way of metaphor to say well it's kind of like that the same way i mean i would i'd use the classic phrasing that you know not that it not that it's highway hypnosis but the same way you're driving somewhere and thinking about everything other than driving is similar to those moments where you know, you're reaching for that cigarette because that's what you've always done. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. it's not necessarily say this is, but instead to say this is like.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I get that.
0: Which in many ways are are aiming to, to sort of uh, de uh, demonize a process yeah, yeah. or just put it into terms that they can go, oh, okay, I can see how this is kind of like that, which on a similar note, back to the point around. Um, you know, you can make that pen stick to your hand, which you know it can't, yet you accepted a series of suggestions by way of, um, I'm very open with the term of psychological influence because we're always doing it on ourselves. So it's, I think the issue is to say, again, back to like the uh, what the bleep clip, the challenge is to say this is versus this is like.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, You know, I I think um, I I think I think what you've just said there makes a lot of sense. You know, certainly for myself, um, uh, you know, I I use a lot of cultural references. You know, I'm a big fan of sci fi. I'm a big fan of um, of of certain sports and and things like that, that that I'll draw upon certain references as as what Michael Yapko refers to as response sets, you know as a means of seeding an idea before before you're then delivering it Um, i suppose some people might refer to that as priming some people might refer to that as just Mm -hmm. uh, um you know in in more conventional psychotherapy this would be psychoeducation where you're educating your clients about what's going to happen and so on and so you know providing an analogy or a metaphor of course i find that or a universal a universal metaphor for example um, um makes a lot of sense i think um um, I, I think one of the things, one of the issues I have with this idea of, you know, w- w- when you're driving, you're 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 off with the fairies. This kind of Ericksonian early learning set type of notion, where where people are encouraged almost to wander off and not be aware, um, I, I think offers up a kind of, uh, you know, certain lack of responsibility and offers up a little bit too much superficial magical thinking. I would much rather be rational and and objective and have people learn to take responsibility for themselves and when they nice. do so nice. when they do so what what that does is creates the byproduct of this thing that i've labored earlier on in in, in this this discussion um, about self-efficacy you know that self-efficacy when, when people you know if, if people have diminished responsibility in terms of you know you can just wander off and, and don't worry because all these suggestions i'm giving you are going to your unconscious mind for example i think mm-hmm. i think i think that 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 doesn't give them the opportunity to develop self-efficacy, to actually feel like I'm doing this for myself. I'm learning something for myself. I'm becoming better at it for myself. It makes them passive. It makes them passive. It makes them kind of sit there and expect a lightning bolt up the ass, which is just, you know, which, which, which sometimes will be effective. And, you know, uh, I I can hear out in the ether now I can hear future people, people of the future listening to this right now that are shouting at at their recording devices that they're listening to this saying, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but it's been working for me, Adam. It's working for me. Right. Uh, But The thing is, the thing is, you know, it's probably not working because of the reasons that you believe it to be.
0: Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's not necessarily a throw it all out. It's a, it's a look at it consciously and critically to go, what else may be going on? What is it I can pull out of this? And how is it I can now highlight those features and make
1: myself even more effective? What are the actual mechanisms that are contributing to the change? Because a lot of the time, it's down to expectation. It's down to placebo. It's down to a lot of different mechanisms. Um, um, you know, a lot of those mechanisms exist you know, when you've got a good working alliance, when you've got a good degree of expectation especially if somebody has been recommended or referred to you by, a, by another successful client, when they've invested themselves financially and they've invested their time in what you're doing, you know, those things, you've not actually had to actually apply yourself in any way for any of those things. But that person now is, is, is primed for success, you know, with a really good therapeutic alliance between, between you and that client. The chances are you should be able to go up to the drawer, pull out a wet fish, slap them across the head with it and 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 if you if you are believing in it enough it ought to work.
0: Hang on 10 seconds here and I just registered wetfishhypnosis.com so we're good. Okay, <laughs> go on. Uh, uh, uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you'll find that wetfish um, wetfishhypnosis.co.uk has already been bought um damn it <laughs> but yeah yeah you know so um, um but, but but this is so, so therefore you know we, we ought to be recognizing well what is it and and so lots of people you know i, I kind of alluded to this earlier on and, and funnily enough i'm just in the process of I, I spoke about this at the uk hypnosis convention this idea that yeah, yeah yeah but you know as long as it works adam why are you getting why are you getting your knickers in a twist you know as long as it works but but you know that that, that mindset as long as it works mindset keeps us absolutely in the dark ages because what's what's happening with this this as long as it works mentality is that um Um, You know, I mean, the the history of medicine is filled with treatments that have worked effectively for millions of people Um, from, from, you know, I mentioned at the UK hypnosis convention in my lecture this year, I mentioned um, a wonderful historical academic paper by a man called Honigfeld in 1964. And he was an early prolific author in the uh, on the placebo effect way back in the 1960s when it it was a relatively new topic to the field of research and he highlighted loads and loads of things that have been used historically that have been effective yeah yeah. like (laughs) bloodletting like leeches like putrid meat like human sweat frog sperm and and i make a big play on this crocodile dung you know crocodile dung was used as a contraceptive you know um, um, and, and, and I made this, you know, I made this joke that croco- you know, crocodiles are laughing at us human beings. You know, they laugh because we've been using their dung as a medical treatment, <laughs> but it was used successfully by thousands of thousands of people and it worked you know i mean who knows why but it worked why don't we continue using crocodile dung today you know um and that is the exact same as long as it works attitude you know that there are reasons that we do not rely purely on client testimonials when deciding clinical treatments you know it's important we don't just continue to have a mindset of as long as it works does it matter how or why adam i've got success i don't need to know more than that it's that kind of anti-intellectualism that is really common in the hypnotherapy field that, that would have, you know, the crocodiles laughing at us for using their, their done for contraception. Trials and evidence tends to ensure that everybody gets precisely the same in a standardized fashion. We get to inform and modernize our field and have more profound credibility. Um, You know, a a really well-known NLP trainer said to me um, a short while ago, you know, I use my computer each day. I don't know how it works. I use my brain each day. I don't need to know how it works. I know NLP works. I don't need to know how or why. And that's one of the reasons that NLP is not growing as a field beyond the cult-like status on the fringes of medicine. It's not making a more of a profound impact because of that kind of lazy, anti-intellectual mindset. And Irving Kirsch, for example, tested the... The um, I'm tested the fast phobia cure. Okay, now i 'm going to ostracize myself to everybody all of your listeners now who who, who, who used the, the fast phobia cure but but in, in in a laboratory setting in a clinical setting, um, they could not replicate the results and it's very testable the fast phobia cure, yet there are nLP practitioners and trainers all around the world getting major results with with regards to this and and you know one of the arguments and one of the the reasons that many academics believe. That they get success out there in the world is not because the, of the technique itself. The technique itself, according to evidence, tends to be impotent. But it's because the people using it believe in it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and and you know, so so you know, I, I urge everybody listening, you know, don't be one of those people who opt for that com- comeback of you know, well, as long as it works, Adam, who cares, you know? Um, um, because because I, I do care. I've spent my entire adult life. In this field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy, dedicating myself to it and I'm and, and desperate for it to be pulled out of the fringes that I've been referring to. Um, um, instead, you know, I, and I want to encourage people to be be the people who actively move the field forward. You know, if you love the field of hypnotherapy, as I do. Um, You need to do more than just spreading the word about it. We need to better understand it. We need to better develop it effectively. You know, the, the as long as it works attitude is the crocodile dung attitude, you know.
0: Well, I mean it's to look at you know what again, what may be also going on what are the moving pieces that are helping this to happen yes. I really appreciated the talk the work that you've done in terms of highlighting okay, so here's what may be going on even with placebo and for years I've been you know kind of privately using the term of going placebo on techniques that actually work
1: yes.
0: so looking <laughs> at look looking at you know what are what are the things that we can begin to model in an evidence-based format, the things we know about dissociation, the things we know about, um, you know, uh, ramping up a state and bringing it down fractionation, the things that we know about even mindfulness based style trainings. Yet again, back to that reference earlier of for the way that I can only describe it as giving myself permission to get a little weird at one point, got a better result. But still at the core of it inside of it is that ability, which was heightening just the imagination, the expectation of the process. But at the core of it, you know, here's a technique that I can look at. Here's research around how it's been effective. Uh, to look at something you hinted at earlier, that again, it's not just that relaxation based state. You know, it's always to ask what is the emotion that's going to be there? What is that physiological state that's going to be there in the result? And that's where I tend to do the work, which is kind of modeling in some sort of indirect way all the work in terms of state based learning. That I want them at that excited place because yeah. that's where they're supposed to be when they're creating that change versus uh, my f- professional language on this is as they've turned to yogurt splattered in the chair. <laughs> yeah. Though there is a moment that I did accidentally uh, build up some static electricity in my body when I went to do a floppy arm drop in a Dave Elman induction. And this is the guy who um, did quit smoking, as easily put it. There was a moment where you just kind of jolted me, and I just knew I was done at that point with the cigarettes. So there's my
1: lightning bolt up the ass uh, hypnosis, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> But you know, you, you know, one of the things, you know, excuse me, butting in there. But one of the things that oh, that's really it. interesting that that you mentioned now. Okay, so so so, you have charisma. Okay, you have charisma, Jason Lynette. You know, you would not be able to to beat these lofty heights within within the field that you are at with if, if there were an absence of that. You also have have a big following. Um um, you, you know, you have you have a voice uh, um that that's heard and so on. Now, so if if to paraphrase you, um, you, you know, and you had some success with with with, with this approach that you took with a particular client where you had to get a little bit weird sometimes, okay? Um, 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 And then, so you decided, ah, this has worked here. This has worked here. This has worked on a couple of occasions for me. So therefore, I'm not going to package this up. I'm going to sell it to the masses. People will buy it because they they believe in you and they trust you and so on. And and people start adopting this idea whereby um, um, the way forward with these particular set of issues is for me to get a little bit weird, um um, um, for example and um um, um, there is a proliferation of that within the hypnotherapy field you know people have found stuff that works for them now i'm not saying it doesn't work i'm not saying that at all but what i'm saying is the reasons it works for um so for example um you know the, the reason that the founder of that technique gets success with it might not be transferable to, to, to everybody else. It may be because of the type of person they are that it's so effective. It may be that they've believed in it so much and it's been so effective. And you know, it, it may not be working because of its standalone technique and so on.
0: And even in the even from the concept of the actual founder of it, the reason they think it's working is different than the thing that's Absolutely, actually making it, it work. Is. This is you just described, by the way, my entire strategy of how I chose the trainings I went to in 2018, by the way, uh, which was that I was looking at who are people who are massively effective at what they do, or in the case of one, seemed to be based on the stories they were telling. We'll let yeah. that one sit for yeah. a moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm reading what between were the, the things? Lines. Exactly, exactly. The session that is now not there anymore. But to look at again, what what elements may be going on? What's that meta analysis in terms of their entire style of work that is what's getting them the result? That it's not just, it, it's the, you know, Michael Elner looking at the practitioner transcending technique. What are those things, what's the environment that the change is being produced? And before we hit record, uh, I was talking about, you know, I'm on the hunt for a new office space as, um, uh, as uh, I've ended my lease early due to some maintenance issues. And I, I was mentioning the story around one of these executive office suite type buildings, which there's nothing wrong with. Yet as soon as I saw it was someone else's environment. And it was someone else's layout and it was an office with the furniture already in there i'm going this is not the way that i work with people you know mine was that they're coming in they're coming into my space they're coming into my setup which may be my perceptions as to why i think i'm doing the work someone else can unpack it and go yeah but here's also what's going on it's to recognize that with all of this there's so many moving pieces the same as and i say this next statement not to discount medical science in any way Um, but the phenomenon of regression to the mean, by the time I got the medication from the doctor, I might've already been on the other side of the bell curve and already on the mend. And yet now I'm claiming, okay, this Zithromax that they gave me for my really bad cold, that's what made me feel better, but I might've already been going there already at that point. Yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, um, um, I would say that that you know a, a lot of a lot of the popular techniques that are out there in the world would be you know um, um, would absolutely be be more effective in the hands of, of of different people. And what what we need to know is is not just not just the the rhetoric of the person delivering it and has put it together and put their approach together. Um, um, we need to be able to examine it and and examine it robustly and not, not just you know not just to pull it apart um, um you know that, that that's not what i'm about um, um but to to understand and to be able to move the field forward and to think critically about what's actually going on um with a lot of this stuff and there you know so many people are just oblivious to this to this whole way of thinking you know um, i mean there are there are organizations out there in the hypnotherapy field that have the word medical and dental in them. You know, I mean, I lecture for the Royal Society of Medicine here in the UK um, and that's full blown, full blown. You know, you've got to be an oncologist or a surgeon or a doctor or or something like that to be a member of that particular organization. Um, But there are hypnotherapy organizations out there referring to medical hypnosis whereby, you know, me- the medical hypnosis that they are talking about, there is no way it would stand up, or, or 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 be genuinely approved in a hospital setting, or a perioperative setting, or a dental setting. You know, it's kind of built upon foundations of sand, and um, um, it's really difficult. Um, You know the the same the same mindset that I'm talking about as applying as far as critical thinking already exists in lots of other fields out there. Um, so it, it already exists in the vast majority of medical fields, and so on. And so, when 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 we then, or a hypnotherapist then equipped with their ten month training course, for example, suddenly starts or, or, or seeks to develop relationships or or to put the word out there with conventional medicine, conventional medicine will apply some scrutiny to what it is that that person is being. Is is suggesting, and it's very hard to get over those boundaries that they put up, uh, unless you know the right questions to ask, unless you know the right evidence to draw upon, unless you've got a a much more robust education and an ability to think critically, Um, um, and that means that we've got to we've got to subject ourselves to some scrutiny, and not just be filled up with Dunning-Kruger type delusion, you know, where we believe we are better than we are all of the time and that we are a full-blown panacea to the world. Instead, we, you know, we've got to recognise our fallibilities um, and, and do what we can to to recognize the deficits within our knowledge, within our skills, and, and, and to build upon that and develop it and be humble enough that when confronted with the medical fraternity, we're able to recognize our own inconsistencies or our our own weaknesses, but also then more, more credibly be able to promote our strengths. Um, and and you know it, it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult out there when there is such an absence of of the critical thinking and of the of of the real kind of adherence. I'm not suggesting that people have to adhere to evidence base in terms of you know let's all do let's all do standardised standardised protocols all of the time. Um, um, but but that we're able to to let the evidence inform what we do you know, inform what we do. You know, I use lots of stuff that doesn't have direct evidence to support it. Um, um, You know, it's more likely to have evidence based principles that support it. But I use lots of stuff which doesn't. Um, um, But, you know, the, the evidence is informing the vast majority of what I do. And then, you know, I can add I can layer on some 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 Artistic or creative elements of of, of myself and so on. Um, I know, for example, James Brown talks a great deal in in your in one of your earlier episodes um, about that he thought you know hypnosis is much more about being an artist. And and I disagree. I think there's huge value in standardized protocols that have been robustly examined, and that that the artistry comes secondary and is layered on afterwards once you've taken a responsible decision afterwards, because you know, somebody like him who's a performer can afford to be artistic, um, but somebody who's earning their living as a full-blown, full-time hypnotherapist, for example, doesn't just want to be winging it all of the time. We want to be making responsible decisions, on you know, for the best of, of our clients. And therefore, we want to, to be making a responsible decision first and then allow some artistry plus how do you teach artistry you know it's it's kind of intangible you can teach the standardized stuff teach people then to be themselves and to be a good person that means well and has you know genuine good intent and and let 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 that that kind of artistry happen in the way that's right for them what i love
0: about that is it's actually giving that next step that rather than just tear it down it's instead I put it in the description of to work with intention to work with purpose to put meaning behind what we do beyond just well it just works or uh, because that's the training that I've come from and it's from there I mean to use a simple example and this is not referencing and it's where I I hear a lot of the tearing down of protocol and yet really we're not a community anymore that's pushing protocol as much as it used to that that's kind of a dialogue that's kind of fallen away around you have to do this exact five step process otherwise you're not going to get results. That's kind of had its own renaissance away from that, and the popularity of that style of work is falling away. But instead, to look at, okay, so here's at least a good logical reason why we're doing it in this order, and we found this to be effective. And let's just make up an example for the critical thinking here. Here's an eight-phase weight loss program – and the fourth phase is now that the nutrition's in order now we can move on to exercise but here comes the artistry and this is a client i've had several times over she's the fitness instructor who is exercising 5 times a day because she's running the class
1: yeah right
0: do we do we have to enhance her exercise no now we have a good logical evidence based reason because the evidence is already there she's actually doing the exercise but instead, what else needs to be addressed? And now we can artistically modify based on that individual and the interaction versus no, but my book says on the fourth session, we need to motivate exercise. Yeah, no, we can we can now make that in, we can make that logical educated choice rather than just no, no, no. But the book says,
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Spot on, spot on. You know, you, you, you've you made the point, uh, you, you've made my point beautifully and put it in, in, in far easier to understand terms, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, um, Yeah. You you know, I, I, I I agree. I have nothing, you know, I have nothing more to add to, to what you said there.
0: So where can uh, people learn about more of your work online? How can they find you?
1: so and um, um, people want to go learn about me um, um, you know as far as hypnosis and hypnotherapy is concerned I'm um, um, find my college you know I, 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 I'm in all social media I um, so you can find me on and my groups on Facebook and Twitter and and so on um, but my college um, the anglo-european college of therapeutic hypnosis here in the UK I um, is AE college of hypnosis dot UK just UK not not co UK um, and and you know even if you're based uh, a long way away, uh, as as Jason is while we're talking, um, we you know I, I have lots of online courses and online training. Um, I really champion the hypnosis geek. You know, I champion the idea of of, of us becoming hypnosis geeks. And um, if you want to learn how to become a real you know highbrow cerebral based. Uh, hypnosis geek, um then, then we've got loads of online programs and memberships um wherever you're based in the world to be able to come and do that. So um yeah. And there's a five day free trial of our members area. Um um yeah, yeah, excuse the plug.
0: Oh this is all about that <laughs> this is the time <laughs> yeah
1: yeah 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 so um, um yeah w- with 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 my main members area there's a five-day free trial where you can just come and have a look you know at all my diploma courses my advanced diploma courses my cognitive behavioral courses my science of self-hypnosis um everything loads of lectures specialist lectures i give around the world at different conferences and conventions um all in there there's like you know several hundred hours of of you know geek love to be had in there nice nice and this
0: is not a hypnosis podcast that pretends other hypnosis podcasts don't exist so talk for a moment about hypnosis weekly
1: yeah well you know um i have hypnosis weekly you know one of the things i'm guessing you find this as well um jason one of the things um it it it, it I feel slightly torn. So, so I've just taken over the UK Hypnosis Convention, for example, um, um, and and one of the things that, that that I'm looking to do is to bring more academics in, and 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 um, um, it's not easy, but but there's going to be some major university professors, some major um, um scientists from the field of hypnotherapy um, and hypnosis lecturing at next year at this year's UK hypnosis convention. And um, so one of the things that, that is really that I've found to be a really real struggle when I started my podcast was people bickering and fighting in forums. And I wanted to say, Hey, look, we can all be tolerant of each other. But um, and so I gave I give everybody a voice just like you do on on your podcast. You know, you don't you don't enforce your own judgment, your own thoughts necessarily upon people. You, you, you shine a light upon them. And, and that's what I what I do and what I set out to do with my podcast, Hypnosis Weekly, which is just hypnosis-weekly.com. And um, so, you know, I have people on there, we interview them, then we talk about a specialist subject. You know, Jason, yourself, you were on um, an earlier edition of, of that, um, you know, a couple of years ago now. And, um, um, you know, I, I really like it. One of, one of the challenges I have as well, though, is that, you know, lots of the stuff that I've been complaining about today, I hope people don't think that I'm just a whinger and a whiner. I'm very proactive with regards to, to looking to raise the game as far as this field is concerned as well. Um, you know, I, I don't just whinge. Um, um, one of the, the challenges that I have is that some of the, the lack of critical thinking exists with some of my guests, you know, um, um, and they say some things so that, that I'm thinking to myself. Whoa, that's nonsense. Um, I, but, but I give them the voice. And, and that's where the kind of cognitive dissonance lies and where I feel kind of tugged because because i you know i want people to have a voice i want people to be able to discuss what they do um um, but if i you know if 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 i just interrogated them and attempted to to go in hard on lots of what they said um um, no one would ever come on it (laughs) no one would ever come back on the show i'd never be able to entice anybody to come and speak on it
0: although i share something that i've actually never talked about here on the podcast that if you look back um there were a few episodes where i was being I, i wouldn't phrase it this way officially but I'd phrase it as I was being polite and just letting the person talk early on yeah and there was one episode or two that I had had released that I was listening to going I don't agree with that I don't believe that at all I don't think that's the best way to work and I think you're basing that on out-of-date thinking and I was kind of punishing myself for not actually engaging in a conversation and that's where I took about a one or two month hiatus from the program and then it came back and that's where It really found its footing as, you know, this more long form conversation where uh, sometimes we're talking as much as each other Where sometimes it's a real dialogue and it's where there's no – I say this after I've now done about 25 podcast recordings uh, in in the launching of my book coming out of – you know, there's some programs I've been on that I can tell, okay, they have very much a formula – you know they they have, they sent me the questions in advance and i knew how to talk about myself in a way to help you know their program of course and promote their service and also promote my promote my book too but recognizing that what we needed was you know the real conversation as opposed to You know, moments where uh, I can agree with the guests or moments where the guests can very politely call me out on something and we can have that chat. And like you mentioned, you know, we leave and these people are still our friends that it's not this. Oh, I'm never talking to this person again because they said something different than what I believe. Uh, I I thirst for that moment of going. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, (laughs) Tell me that this. uh, my favorite moment with a student was someone who took a class with me in like 2013 And uh, I I put the offer out to my students to say you can always reattend at no extra charge. And he took it again in 2017. And he goes, Hey, it's a very interesting, it's a very different class. I'm going, Yeah, I figured this stuff out better now. Yeah, yeah. Come back again in four years and I'll be, you know, have different opinions on things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I love that. So so there's that, yeah, you're right. There is that place of letting people have their voice. Yet it's again where my own program had a bit of a renaissance of just saying, Let's just have a conversation, let's just talk about this. Rather than just saying, "Here's your microphone. I'll see you in an hour."
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, one of the things that you said in in when when I when I spoke with you on my podcast, um, one of the things you said that was that was a work of art was you, you discussed and and made a quote about learning from people who disagree with each other.
0: Which it turns out by the way, we've all been credited Michael crediting Michael Elner for that. And it turns out Michael Elner stole that from Scott ah, Sandlin. Right. Uh and these are all right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's really officially now a Scott Sandlin statement. Great. But yeah, learning from people who disagree with each other.
1: You mentioned that on the show. I I, I ended up writing I ended up writing an article and, and it, it formed the basis of, of part of the keynote um uh, the keynote presentation that I gave at the UK hypnosis convention back in twenty two thousand and sixteen, which was about what we can learn from feuding hypnotists, because there've been some very classic feuds throughout academic history, for example. Um, um, and, and, and yeah, yeah, you know, it was a really lovely thing. And um, so, so, you know, I mentioned earlier, there's lots of people that, that I have massive friendships with that I have great respect for, but that perhaps, you know, I, I don't agree with wholeheartedly. And so, you know, rather than rather than suddenly um, 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 than changing anything massively on the podcast, you know, I I went and started just foaming at the mouth and frothing at the mouth about these things on my YouTube channel. So, so, you know, I I I kind of go there and there's just me. I don't mention any names. I just talk about the things and talk about and look to to kind of break down some myths and misconceptions and introduce the science. And that's kind of where I wax a little bit more lyrical uh, about what's close to my heart
0: excellent adam this has been fantastic
1: oh uh, yeah, yeah thank you so much jason it's been a real real pleasure um i i i love what you do and um and a massive success to you with your future projects some exciting stuff i know you have coming up
0: Hey, it's Jason here once again. And as always, thank you so much for leaving your reviews online, subscribing as well to Adam Eason's Hypnosis Weekly podcast. And once again, head over to worksmartbusiness.com. Be a part of the WorkSmart Business book launch. Also as well, I mentioned it earlier, hypnotic workers. Yes, I do WorkSmart Hypnosis Live, which is a live training event. Yet workers is a bit more themed for those people who have already been trained in hypnosis. And perhaps you're not quite getting the exact results that you'd want. If you'd like to learn systems to, well, systematize how you address your work and how to build that confidence that creativity and your flexibility in your process there are full change protocols there are full client sessions demoed and you can join hypnotic workers for as little as $47 a month so check that out hypnoticworkers.com grab the book at worksmartbusiness.com and uh keep hypnosis awesome thanks thanks for listening to the worksmart hypnosis podcast at worksmarthypnosis.com